0: John chapter 2, in verses 24 to 27 that we looked at last time, John's message to us was to abide in Christ. He uses that word abide five times in those four verses. And we said that the word abide means to dwell in, to be at home in, to possess, to move freely in. And John tells us there how we are to abide in Christ. In verse 24, we're to do so by letting His Word abide in us. And in verse 27, by letting His Spirit teach us. And then when we come to verse 28, he says, And now, little children, abide in Him. Now, your response may be, Why? Why should I abide in Christ? I mean, that's something for preachers and missionaries. That's not for me. I mean, that's so contrary to my fleshly nature. That's so contrary to the world we live in. It's so much easier just to abide in myself or just to abide in the world. Why should we abide in Christ? Well, John's going to answer that question in our passage this morning, beginning in verse 28 of chapter 2 and running down through chapter 3 and verse 3. And there he gives us the motive for abiding in Christ. We're motivated to abide in Christ when we keep five things in perspective. Number one, what we could be. Number two, what we are. Number three, what we aren't. Number four, what we shall be. And number five, what we are should be. Kind of reminds me of that old hymn, then we shall be what we would be when we could be what we should be, and you know, that one. First of all, what we could be, verse 28, and now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Now when I say what I could be, the doubt is not about the second coming of Christ. If you look at this verse, it doesn't say if he appears, it says when he appears. He is definitely coming. In fact, I'm told that the second coming of Christ is the most frequently mentioned truth in all the New Testament. Jesus Christ is coming back. The only doubt is in reference to when it's going to happen and how you and I are going to respond when it does. If Jesus appeared this very moment, how would you respond? Well, John says there are only two possible reactions, confidence or shame. We'll either joyfully and confidently embrace him or we will sadly and shamefully shrink away. You say, well, I thought the coming of Christ was going to be a time of celebration. I thought there would be no shame and no regrets and no negative notes. I thought it would be a time of all sweetness and all light and all rewards. Well, I think we get that idea because most of the time we compare the second coming of Christ between two groups, and that's unbelievers and believers. But John is not talking here about unbelievers and believers. He's talking about believers. And he says among believers there are going to be two responses, and only two responses, to the second coming of Christ. One is confidence, and the other is shame. You say, well, is that consistent with the teaching of the rest of Scripture? Well, let me show you some verses. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, says each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. It's coming a day when our work will be tested with fire. Notice verse 14. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. Now the fire is not going to test our salvation. Salvation is a gift. And he says at the end of verse 15, even the guy whose work is totally burned up Is still saved. Some people are going to get into heaven smelling like smoke with nothing in their hands. But see, he's not talking here about testing our salvation, he's talking about testing our work. And he says in verse 14 some will get a reward that's confidence, others will suffer loss that's shame. Then in chapter 4 and verse 5, he shows us a little more about that day. He says, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and will disclose the motives of men's hearts and then each man's praise will come to him from God. When the Lord comes, he's going to shine his light on some things. And Paul says he's going to reveal Things hidden in the darkness and the motives of our hearts. And then turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 10. Speaking to Christians, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. When Christ appears, he is going to shine his light on the motives of our hearts, on the things that we have hidden that no one else knows about, and on the quality of our service for him, whether it's good or bad. You say, well, if that's the the case, how could anybody have confidence when he comes? I mean, the best I can hope for is a little confidence and a little shame. Maybe I can fall somewhere in between. Well, if you're saying that, that tells me you don't understand the nature of shame. Because it only takes a little bit of shame to drive away all your confidence. So you can be dressed really nice and you guys have your best suit on but if you get a gravy stain on your tie that one little mark throws out all your confidence. If you've got a nice outfit on but you tore the seat of your pants it doesn't matter how good you look everywhere else because that one little flaw brings shame and he's saying that's the way it is when Christ comes back you can't have both confidence and shame it's going to be one or the other you say but if Christ is going to look at motives and attitudes and hidden things how can I ever be confident I mean, I've failed so many times that surely when he comes back, I'm going to have to cower in shame. Surely when he comes back, I'm going to have to respond like Adam and Eve did in the garden. I'm going to have to hide in the bushes. How could we ever be confident when Christ comes back if he's going to reveal all our motives and all our hidden things? Well, the answer is in verse 28. He says, And now, little children, abide in him... So that when he appears, we may have confidence. How do we know we're going to have confidence when he comes back? We abide in him. Now, how does abiding in him assure me confidence when Jesus comes back? Well, let me suggest a couple things. Number one, things that would bring me shame in that day are already dealt with when I abide in Christ. You see, he tells me the way I abide in Christ back in verse 24 is by letting the Word abide in me. Letting the Word of God be at home in me. Letting the Word of God possess me and move freely in me. And that means I allow the Word of God to go into every room of my life and open every door and uncover and expose every hidden thing and every wrong motive and every area of pretense, every area of hypocrisy. I allow the Word of God to dwell in me, abide in me, and as it reveals those hidden things, what do I do with them? 1 John one nine: If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, I have no reason to be ashamed of the things that I have already confessed to the Lord. I remember giving my testimony years ago, and after I was done, a girl came up to me and said, I don't know how you can say all those negative things that you did in the past. And I said, well, I can talk about them now with confidence because I know that the Lord Jesus has forgiven those things. You see, he's not going to bring those things up. Because those things are forgiven, and those things are forgotten, and those things are cleansed. You see, the only things I will be ashamed of are the things that I have hidden from him now, that I won't reveal to him, that I won't let him deal with now. There's a great verse in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-one. 31. It says, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. You see, if you allow the Word of God to judge you now and bring out those hidden things and you confess them to the Lord, you'll never have to deal with them in a future day. There will be no shame in the future because you've dealt with them in the present. And that's what it means to abide in Christ. And that's how He gives us confidence. Because the things that would bring a shame in the future are already dealt with. But there's a second way that abiding in Christ brings us confidence, and that is it will produce in us those things that bring confidence. You know, one of the things that the Gospels make very clear is that Jesus Christ never did one single thing to displease the Father. Everything he did was pleasing to God, and the same is true of him today. And so when we abide in him, we can say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And since Christ lives in me, if I abide in him, that is, let him possess me, if I dwell in him freely, then who is producing the works in my life? Christ is. And what Christ does through me gives me confidence because I know that whatever he does is already pleasing to the Father. So my confidence is not really in what I am doing. It's in what Christ is doing through me. When I abide in him, he's producing in me those things that bring confidence before the Father. So why should we abide in Christ? Number one, because of what we could be. Confident at his coming rather than ashamed. Because when I abide in him, he deals with those shameful things now and he produces in me those things that will bring confidence before the Father. Second thing we need to keep in perspective is what we are. Verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. We need to keep in perspective what we are. And what are we? We are the children of God. And John simply says in verse 29 that a child takes on the characteristics of his father. As children grow up around here, I'm often finding myself saying of a little guy, I'll say, you know, every day, he's starting to look more and more like his father. And that should be true of you and me in relationship to our heavenly father. What does our heavenly father look like? What does he behave like? Well, John tells us in verse 29, he is righteous. That's the family mark. And whoever behaves like God... Practicing righteousness is obviously born of God because it takes the life of God to produce that. Now, don't misunderstand verse 29. He's not saying that practicing righteousness is the cause of being born of God. Practicing righteousness is the product of being born of God. And if you have any question about that, it's settled when we come to chapter 3 and verse 1 because here he's marveling. He says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. What is the cause of our relationship with the Father? It's His love. And I, and I, this is one of those verses that frustrates me as a Bible teacher because I can't really communicate all that I want to communicate. But it's very evident to me that John is marveling in this truth. He's just amazed at the love of God. In fact, he uses a phrase here. My my Bible says, how great a love. Yours may say, what manner of love. It's literally a phrase that means what foreign kind of love. It's the same word the disciples used when Jesus stilled the Sea of Galilee and they said... What manner of man is this? What foreign kind of man is What out-of-this-world kind of man is this? And John says, See what a strange kind of foreign love that God has showered on us sinners that we should be called the children of God. John is amazed by it. And we ought to be amazed by it as well. Now, unfortunately, even as Christians, a lot of times we let pride come in. And we find ourselves thinking, you know, God must be awful happy to have me as his child. He must be just rejoicing in heaven that I consented to join his side. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. You and I ought to stand amazed that god has such a love such such a love that we've never experienced anywhere else that he would take a proud rebellious sinner and call me his child and i love it that john adds this phrase and such we are We're not just called his children. We're not just his children by name. John says, such we are. That's who we are. And when we begin to fathom that we are the children of a righteous God, we are the children of a loving God, it should cause us to desire to do nothing else but abide in him. Third thing we need to keep in perspective is what we aren't. And John tells us we aren't two things. We aren't known, and we aren't finished. First of all, we aren't known. Look at the end of verse 1. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Now, if you could say, I am the child of Ted Turner, or I am the child of George Bush, the world would sit up and take notice. But when you say I am a child of God the world yawns because they don't know you when when you get saved and in that fresh enthusiasm you go home to tell your friends and your family about your new relationship with the Lord what's usually going to happen cold water you're going to get indifference criticism skepticism And John explains to us why that happens at the end of verse 1. He says, because it did not know him. What you can expect from the world in general is the same thing that Jesus got, and that is rejection. They didn't know him, and they're not going to know you. So the first thing we aren't is we aren't known. The second thing we aren't is we aren't finished. Look at verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. Now, the problem the world has is it can't see with spiritual eyes. It can only see with physical eyes. And to the physical eye, we, the children of God, are incognito. You don't get saved and suddenly have a halo over your head. Nobody can see that. But John says, it's interesting, in the Greek... This verse 2 begins with the word, now. Now we are the children of God. That's not something we're waiting to be. That's something we already are. Now we are the children of God, but we are not finished yet because it has not appeared yet. We have not been made manifest what we shall be. We are the children of God, but we are incognito. Let me show you a great verse. Romans chapter 8. Actually, it's a great passage, but I'll show you one verse. Romans chapter 8 and verse 19. It says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, when Adam fell into sin in the garden, God cursed Creation. This verse tells us that, or this passage tells us that creation is groaning, waiting to be restored, relieved of that curse. And the key thing that needs to happen for creation to be, the curse to be lifted off creation, is, as it says in verse 19, the sons of God to be revealed. We're incognito, we're veiled. We need to be unveiled. And he uses two interesting words here. They're in, the, in verse 19. Anxious longing and waiting eagerly. Those two words literally mean to stand on tiptoe and crane the neck in anticipation. Now, that's a vivid picture. You're walking down the street and the trees are standing on their tiptoes, craning their neck, and they're saying, I think that's one of them. They're craning their neck in anticipation that we will be revealed because when we are revealed, when Christ comes and reveals us, He's going to lift the curse as well. And they can't wait for that. You see, we are incognito. The world doesn't know us because we are not yet what we're going to be. And since that is the case, since we are now children of God but we're not yet what we're going to be and the world doesn't even know us, It ought to motivate us to abide in Christ. Fourth thing we need to keep in perspective is what we shall be. Look at the end of verse 2. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him just as He is. What we are has not been manifested yet. We're still waiting. And we don't know a whole lot of things about our future state, although we ask a whole lot of questions about it. We want to know what will we be like? Will I know my friends? Will I fly around the universe? Will we eat in heaven? Will I get my hair back? <laughs> Somebody asked me the other day is heaven going to be boring? Now, is it going to be kind of like a, a glorified retirement colony? Some of us have the idea we're just going to sit on a cloud in a glorified bathrobe and play a harp for eternity. A lot of questions. You know, the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of details about what eternity will be like. In fact, Paul went to paradise and back in 2 Corinthians 12, 4, and he says he heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. It's almost like Paradise is impossible to convey to us in our present state. And maybe that's why most of what the Bible says about it is negative. It says there will be no tears, no sorrow, no night, no death, no separation, no weakness, no pain. And we're left to sort of speculate what it will be like to have the opposite of those things. But you know, there's one thing that we know for sure, and it's the most important thing of all. And we see it in verse 2. It says, when he appears, we shall be like him. Now, I don't need the answers to all those other things when I know this. I will be like him. Philippians 3.20 says, We eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. What will we be like? We will be like Him. And I want you to notice something interesting in verse 2. It says, We shall be like Him because we shall see Him just As he is. Now there's a principle there. Seeing him makes us like him. John says we're going to be like him. Why? Because we're going to see him just as he is. See, that's a principle. Seeing him makes us like him. That's true right now. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled face... Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory. What's the mirror? It's the Word of God. As I look into the mirror, the Word of God, and I see the glory of the Lord, I'm transformed to become more like Him. The more I see Him, the more I become like Him. And then ultimately, John says in our verse, We shall see Him just as... He is, and we will be totally transformed. We will be like Him. What a great promise. Now, since that's a principle, seeing Him makes us like Him, shouldn't that motivate us to be in the place where we see Him most clearly? And where is that? That is when we abide in Him. Fifth thing we need to keep in perspective is what we should be, verse 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Let me ask you a question that I want you to answer in honesty this morning. What is your hope fixed on? What is your hope fixed on? You know, when I was a little boy, my hope was fixed on becoming a professional athlete. That's all I wanted to do. And when my brother and I would play ball in the backyard, he would say, I'm Mickey Mantle. And I would say, okay, I'm Roger Maris. We we would set up role models, people we wanted to be like. Kids do that today. I want to be, you know, I'm Michael Jordan. I'm Mark McGuire. I'm Marshall Falk. And it, looking ahead in hope makes those little boys practice harder to try to become the people they want to become. John is saying we need to apply that same principle to the coming of Christ. You see, he's not writing here about the coming of Christ because he wants to get theological. He's writing here about the second coming of Christ because he wants to get ethical and practical. He says, when my hope is fixed on him and his return, it has a present effect on me. It purifies me. When I was in Bible college, I had a friend named Dennis Stoutenberg. And Dennis was kind of an odd guy, uh, in a good way. He's a guy that, one of the only guys I spent the entire night praying with. But whenever Dennis would pass me in the hall, he would look at me and he would say, it might be today. Now when you're having a difficult day and you're kind of rushing around and you're thinking about all the things you've forgotten to do and somebody says to you, it might be today. It affects you. That perspective affects the choices that you make of the things that will fill your mind will fill your time, will fill your actions. When we have our hope fixed on Him, it purifies us. Martha Snell Nicholson lived her life in constant pain and anguish. She was a lady who was bedridden as an invalid for 35 years of her life. But her spirit transcended her physical limitations. And she wrote some of the finest Christian poetry that's ever been written. What was her secret? I want you to listen to her own words. She says, The best part is the blessed hope of his soon coming. How I ever lived before I grasped that wonderful truth, I do not know. How anyone lives without it in these trying days, I cannot imagine. Each morning I think with a leap of my heart, he may come today. And each evening I think, when I awake, I may be in glory. Each day must be lived as though it were my last, and there is so much to be done to purify myself and to set my house in order. I am on tiptoe with expectancy. There are no gray days, for they're all touched with color. No more dark days, for the radiance of his coming is on the horizon. No more dull days with glory just around the corner. And no more lonely days with his footstep coming ever nearer. And the thought that soon, very soon, I shall see his blessed face and be forever through with pain and tears. That's what it means to have your hope fixed on him. And that hope purified her. Let me let her explain how that works. This is the words from one of her poems she wrote earlier. When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ, and he shows me his plan for me, the plan of my life as it might have been had he had his way, and I see how I blocked him here and I checked him there, and I would not yield my will, will there be grief in my Savior's eyes? grief though he loves me still. He would have me rich and I stand there poor, stripped of all but his grace, while memory runs like a hunted thing down the paths I cannot retrace. Then my desolate heart will well nigh break with the tears I cannot shed. I shall cover my face with my empty hands. I shall bow my uncrowned head. Lord of the years that are left to me, I give them into your hand. Take me and break me. Mold me to the pattern you have planned. That is the prayer of someone who does not want to be ashamed when Jesus comes back. That's the prayer of someone who is being purified by hope. That is the prayer of someone who is abiding in Christ. And that's John's call to us. Abide in Christ. Why? What we could be, confident rather than ashamed. What we are, children of God. What we aren't, known by the world. What we shall be, like Christ. And what we should be, purified by our hope in Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this challenge. We thank you for the truth that Jesus Christ is coming back and it could be today. And Lord, I pray that we might be challenged even negatively with the thought that if he did come today, I might be ashamed. And Lord, may it challenge us to keep short accounts with you, to fix our hope on you and to allow that to purify our lives as we realize that it may be today, it may be tomorrow. We don't have much time left. And, Lord, may we keep our house in order as we look forward to you. And as a result, may we truly have a passion for your coming. And, Lord, may we look forward to it confidently, knowing that Your the blood of the Lord Jesus has cleansed us of all our sins. And we need to deal honestly with you as we walk before you. And, Lord, I thank you for that privilege of abiding in you and looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus. In his worthy name, amen.